Alright, hey, good morning Three Circle, man. Great to be with you guys as we are going to kick off a brand new series on Passover. Really excited about that. Before we do, let me, let me tell you what the, I want to tell you what the next four weeks are going to look like at Three Circle Church. So three of the next four weeks are going to be on the Passover. What we're going to do is we're going to explore how Jesus, our Passover lamb, is superior in every way to what happened in the Old Testament. We're not going to minimize what happened in the Old Testament. We are going to magnify what Jesus did. And we're going to allow the Old Testament to give us the the richness and the context of what Jesus did for us. So during this series, we're going to have one foot in the upper room in Jerusalem and one foot in Egypt in the Exodus. And we're going to see what God is going to teach us through this. Really excited about that. But next week's going to be unique. And let me tell you why. Okay, We're going to have a guest speaker. I'll be here because I want to hear him too. And I, I can't wait to tell you about this. So as a kid, my youth pastor who really changed my life and and ended up getting me into ministry. Uh, My youth pastor's spiritual hero was a guy by the name of Greg Laurie, okay? Now, Greg Laurie uh, started the Harvest Crusades out in California, some of the biggest evangelistic crusades our country has ever seen, second maybe only to Billy Graham. And uh, so he has had like 40, 50 years of just incredible God-centered, theologically rich, solid integrity ministry. And so because of my youth pastor, Greg Laurie's always been a spiritual hero to me. Now, you may be aware that they're shooting a movie right now on the Eastern Shore, a major motion picture called Jesus Revolution is being filmed right now. Well, it's about Greg Laurie's life and his incredible conversion. So one of the guys invited me the other day, and he knew that I, that I had a connection with Greg Laurie, but had never met him. And he was like, man, hey, Greg's in town. Would you like to have lunch with Pastor Laurie? And I was like, "Does you know, did Billy Graham have a quiet time? Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> and so I go, and man, just unbelievable. And, and in the middle of it, I just kind of said to him, hey, man, if you're coming back to Mobile or to the Eastern Shore for the filming some more, you, know, you should just preach at Three Circle Church. Little did I know he was going to pick up his phone and call his assistant. And before lunch was over, he was like, it's on. Next week, Greg Laurie's preaching at Three Circle. So we're excited about that. We could not be more excited to have Greg Laurie in the house this next Sunday. So invite your friends. It's going to be incredible. He's excited about it, and we're excited to have Pastor Greg Laurie. So, uh, so that'll happen next week. Today, though, we're going to dive right into the Passover. What happened on that night? That night, let's start in Jerusalem in the upper room. We're familiar with it somewhat, but what really did it mean? We're going to see that today. So Jesus... With his disciples, Matthew 26 says, Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." Now, what happened right here? The first thing I want you to see, this was not new for the disciples. The disciples had been doing the Passover celebration once a year their whole life because they are under Mosaic law. Guess what? Jesus has been doing the Passover too. So they didn't ask him, are we doing the Passover? No, no. They just said, now where are we doing the Passover? We'll go get it all ready. So the Passover wasn't new to them. Secondly, you need to understand that Jesus uh, was taking the Passover with them. You need to understand that That night was not new to them either. What would happen with the wine and the bread, all of that was always a part of the Passover. Nothing was different until Jesus started talking. But when Jesus started talking, he did three things that night with the Passover. He transformed it, clarified it, and completed it. The Lord's Supper was a transformation, a clarification, and a completion of the Passover meal and celebration. 
It's kind of like this. They had been watching previews their whole life. They're about to get the movie. See, I'm a big Batman fan. I have been my whole life. In 1989, the great Michael Keaton decided to put on the suit, and he was that first real Batman, right? Before then, it was kind of bang, pow, pop, that kind of stuff. And, and, but then it's a real movie, and I've always loved Batman. And then, uh, then there was the ones in the 90s. And, they, you know, Val Kilmer, I think, was very underrated. I think he did great as Batman. George Clooney was terrible as Batman, but I like George Clooney. It was bad. And then, uh, you know, and then, and then we, we moved on. And then Christopher Nolan had his trilogy, right? And they were great. Christian Bale as Batman was awesome. And then Ben Affleck, we okay. But then this new one was coming out. And me and my sons, you know, we really love Batman. And so about six months ago, my oldest son comes running in the living room with his phone. And he's like, check it out. The preview for the new The Batman. Is, is out. And we watched it together and we're like, ooh, what does that mean? Ooh, is that what the car is going to look like? Ooh, what is that? Who is that? And we got these, these previews. And for six months, we kept, they would release another preview and it just made us want to see the movie more. But we didn't not go see the movie when it came out. We didn't go, oh, we've seen the previews. No, no, we, we knew that nothing was complete. So we went and saw the nine and a half hour new Batman movie. <laughs> if you go see it, take some clothes to change into, you're going to be there a while. It was awesome. We loved it. But while we're watching the movie, we're going, oh, that's what that was. Oh, it all makes sense now. Because what was a preview was not meant to be the main event. When we went and saw the movie, it all made sense. The Lord's Supper and the crucifixion the next day, what Jesus is going to do is going to make sense of all those years of history in the Old Testament. Every Passover meal that had ever been taken was leading to this. That's what it was all about. So 1 Corinthians 5.7, the Apostle Paul, who helps us understand the theology of what took place, he calls Jesus the Passover lamb. He says, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. He's talking about the new covenant as you really are unleavened. Watch this. For Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That is the message for every Christian for all time. Every year at this time when we get ready for Easter, we are saying in our hearts, Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We hold to that. And we need to hold to the richness and the beauty of Jesus, the Passover lamb. But to understand truly what it all meant that night and that weekend when Jesus would die, we need to walk back. We need one foot in Jerusalem, but we need another foot in ancient Egypt. We need to go back and understand how we got here in the first place. To do so, I'm going to take you on a little ride, okay? A a historical ride. We're going to put it up on the screen, and let's just go back in time. Let's go back one step further in Abraham. Adam and Eve are in a garden. They sin, and they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. It does not work. And God says, you can't cover yourself. I'm the one that's going to have to cover you, and I will. I'm going to, and I will, and I will cover you. And so go on through Noah and the flood, and we get to this guy, Abraham. God looks at this man, Abraham. The Bible just tells us that he had believed in God by faith, just like all of us do, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was saved just like we're saved, the exact same way. The righteousness of who saved him? Was it his own righteousness? No. He believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Whose righteousness? Jesus. Abraham was looking forward to Jesus, and we look back at him. When we believe, it is credited to us as righteousness from who? Jesus. The same righteousness saved Abraham that saves us. Does that make sense, church? All right. So we get to Abraham, and God says, I'm going to make a promise to you, the Abrahamic covenant. Two things. There's two features. There's going to be a physical nation that comes out of you, Israel, and there's going to be a spiritual family that comes out of you. The church, 
These are going to come out of you because there's going to be not only a nation out of you, there's going to be a Messiah. There's a seed in there that's going to be the Messiah. He makes this promise. Well, then we move forward, and as you know, Abraham's family was a bit of a drama situation, right? Lots of drama. And we end up with all these, Isaac, and you got Jacob and Esau, and Jacob has a bunch of sons, and one of his sons' name is Joseph. Joseph makes his brothers mad, and they sell him into slavery, and that's how we get Israel into Egypt. If you've ever wondered, how in the world do we go from Abraham, and they all end up in Egypt? That's how. Because Joseph is sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers to get rid of him. What they didn't know is God had a plan. Joseph, when he ends up in Egypt, is a godly man, and they recognize it, and a famine hits the land. And Egypt goes to this wise young man, Joseph, and they say, can you get us through this? And because God's hand is on him, they absolutely trust him. And he makes Egypt the savior of the entire world around them from the famine. And guess who else is starving to death? You guessed it, his brothers and his family, the Israelites. There's about 100 of them now. He goes and rescues them. That's how Israel ends up in Egypt. And everything was good because Joseph is the man. He's the hero of Egypt at that time. So the Pharaoh gives the Israelites the best land, and they take care of them, and everything's good. But guess what? Time passed by. The Israelites kept growing. In fact, they're going to end up being about a million strong. But the Egyptians, as Joseph died, and then guess what? The Pharaoh died, and then other Pharaohs died. And years passed by. When we pick up the story in the Exodus, the Egyptians hate the Israelites. They wake up one day, and they go, these aren't our people. Why, what's going on here? And they multiply so fast. What's up with these people? And then they use their military power. Now remember, you got to understand, the, the Egyptians of the Exodus trying to remember back to Joseph and that Pharaoh would be like us trying to remember George Washington. All you think is wooden teeth and a dollar bill. That's all you know about old George. Hundred, a couple hundred years ago. That's how it was. It was a distant memory. So they put all of the Israelites under forced labor. And they make them slaves. And so they're in slavery. And they not only do slavery, that's not enough. They decide they need to slow down the growth of the Israelite nation. So they say, not only that, we're going to institute state-led infanticide. Which is interesting. We could dive into that for a little while. But they decide, their government says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the lives of boys, firstborn boys. And they're going to drown them in the Nile. It's infanticide. It's brutal. And they begin to do this. But one little boy survives. You know his name, right? Yeah, I guessed it. Moses. His mama says, no, nah, we're not going to play this game. They put him in a basket, float him across the Nile, and guess who comes down to the bank and picks him up? Pharaoh's family. So this little boy is raised as an Egyptian young man. He's an Israelite. For 40 years, he lives like an Egyptian in the royal court. He learns their language. He learns their customs. And at 40 years old, he realizes he's an Israelite. He's a Hebrew. And he realizes that these Egyptians are abusing them, his people. And he has a, he has a moment of clarity. And he kills an Egyptian soldier. Now he realizes he's in trouble. And he flees into a desert. And he spends 40 more years herding sheep. Now, how old is Moses now? Let's do some math. He's 80. If anyone in this room is elderly and you think you're just going to coast on in, let me tell you, God may just be getting started with you. Buckle up. So he's 80 years old. He's walking on the side of a mountain, and he sees a fire burning. And as he gets close, he sees that the fire is in a bush, but it's not consuming the bush. This is a fire that needs no fuel. It is a self-sustaining fire because the God who is about to speak to him is a God who's totally self-sustaining. He needs nothing. 
and a voice speaks to him, and we pick up the story there. An 80-year-old man is looking into a fire, and the Lord said to him, Exodus 11, uh, uh, Exodus 3, 6 through 8, he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the, I love this sentence, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I love that. It's not like he was asleep. He knew their sufferings. And I have come down, look at this, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That's the promised land. I love that God says, don't think I haven't seen everything that's happened. This is a reminder to all of you who suffer today, all of us who go through stuff, and you think, does God even know the astounding and resounding answer from Scripture is, yes, he doesn't miss a thing. He knows that you're suffering. He knows. He's got it. He's got it. You can trust him. And he says, I've come to rescue. And Jesus will say the same thing. God doesn't change. When God comes, the God-man, he says to everyone, I've come to seek and save the lost. I've come to rescue, not just from Egypt, but from sin and from hell and from an eternal uh, separation from God. He came to save us. It was all previews. God demonstrated his faithfulness to his people. He is faithful by hearing them and saving them. What an astounding thing. So what happens next? Well, Moses walks off that mountain with a new mission. 80-year-old Moses walks down off the mountain with a mission for his life, and it's to go to the Pharaoh and tell him, let God's people go. That's not going to go well. But remember, why did God choose Moses? Why did he set all of this up? Because Moses knows Egypt. They know him. He rolls in, and they're like, huh, last time we saw you, you were younger. You're back now. What you been doing all this time? And he walks in with the Pharaoh. He gets an audience because of who he is. He walks in, and he goes, I got a message from you, from my God, the living God. Let his people go. Pharaoh says no, and God says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start applying pressure. And he begins a series of plagues. The plagues go like this. First thing that happens, the Nile turns to blood. Pharaoh is unmoved. The next thing, God sends a a bunch of frogs. That'd get my attention. He does not move. Thirdly, it gets gross now. He sends lice on the people and the livestock. That doesn't get it done, so then he sends flies, which would drive me insane, I think, right? And that doesn't get him, and so the livestock begin to die. Fifth plague, livestock dies, disease. That's a big deal, but then it got personal. The next one, since Pharaoh won't change, is God sends boils on the bodies of the Egyptians. It's painful, it's horrible. That doesn't work, so God sends a weather phenomenon. It hails like they had never seen, destroys buildings and crops and dwelling places, injures people. That doesn't work, so one of the great feared things of the ancient world happens. God sends swarms of locusts down on the people. That doesn't even work, so God covers the sun and the moon, and it gets gets black, dark, and they can't see a thing. And that does not move the heart of Pharaoh either, so in the end, God's going to take the firstborn of every family of Egypt. And that's how we get to the Passover. That's how we get to that timeline. In fact, guys, if you could put that timeline back up again. So we can go back to it. They'll put up the timeline. So we're going to go to the plagues. And now we're going to get to the Passover. So it went Moses, plagues, and now comes the Passover. Because the Passover is going to happen to protect God's people from the death angel that's going to come and apply this last plague to Egypt. Let's go to Exodus 11, 1, 4 through 7. 
The Lord said to Moses, one more plague I'm going to bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he's going to drive you away completely. So Moses went to the people like God told him to, and he said, Thus says the Lord, After midnight I'll go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not even a dog will growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So God says, here's how this is going to go, but I'm going to protect you. That line is haunting to me where he says, you're going to hear when you're in your house behind the blood on those doorposts, you're going to hear sounds outside that's going to terrify you. You're going to hear a sound like you've never heard as hundreds of thousands of people begin to realize what has happened. As they run into the streets with their firstborn, as they scream, as they wail, you're going to hear sounds all night long and you just remember while you're sitting there that I've got you. It reminds me when Hurricane Sally blew in. My, my boys just slept right through it. But my little girl runs into the living room and me and my wife and my little girl sit on the couch it sounds like our roof's going to blow off, and it just wouldn't stop. And one, one of my buddies, Mike, uh, he, he's texting me in the middle of the night. He's got this really good weather stuff, and he's like, man, the hurricane isn't even here yet. It's about to get even worse. And I'm like, thank you for the encouragement. <laughs> like, These are just outer bands. It did get worse. And I remember all night it would sound like everything's breaking loose outside, and I would just put my arm around Gracie, and I'd say, we're okay in here. I know it sounds real bad out there but we got a good roof and a good house. Daddy's got you. We're okay in here. And I think all night long, Israelite parents, daddies were looking at their babies, looking at their kids going, I know what you're hearing, but you don't have to worry because you see that blood on that doorpost? That angel will not cross that line. We're okay. God has us. God has protected us. It's a powerful night. It's a powerful night that none of them would ever forget. So why is Jesus connected to everything we just talked about, and why is he superior? We're going to spend the remainder of our time exploring that. And if you're a Christian in the room, I want to make your heart burst with love and worship and devotion for Jesus. I want you to walk out with a little mm-hmm in you, all right? Like, man, I went to church today. I'm reminded of how great Jesus is, how grateful I am for Jesus, all right? If you're not a believer, I want you to leave drawn to him. I want you to want the Christ of the Bible to cover you the way he covers believers. I want that for you. So why is Jesus superior to what we just read about? Well, let's take a look. The first thing God said to his people, Exodus 12, 3, is he said, Tell all the congregation of Israel uh, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. The first thing I want you to see is that every household in Israel had to have a separate lamb. You had to go get a lamb for just your house. But Jesus is superior. The Passover lamb of the Old Testament covered one household, but Jesus the lamb covers all believers. See, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Don't miss that. Jesus is our Passover lamb. That's why in 1 Corinthians 5-7, it says that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He's our Passover lamb. And our Passover lamb is greater than any Passover lamb that they ever had in the Old Testament. Because it covered one house, every house, one little house, only one lamb could cover that house. 
Jesus covers all believers for all time. That means that my grandfather who passed away seven years ago, he was covered in the blood of the lamb and I'm covered in the blood of the lamb and my great-great-grandkids, if they believe in Jesus, will be covered in the same lamb that I'm covered in and he was covered in. And that's true for you too. Jesus is superior. Secondly, in verse 5, he said, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from sheep or the goats. So what does this mean? Let me tell you how this went. So they had to... They had to pick a lamb, and all of them had little lambs, and that's how it worked. It was an agriculture, agrarian society. And so here's what God said. I want you to pick your very best lamb. It has to be an unblemished one. But how many of you know that none of them were truly unblemished? What this means is they had to get the best one. Because you know how humans are. It's like, oh, we've got to sacrifice a lamb. So they go get the one that got ran over by a chariot accidentally last year. Didn't walk straight, got one eye looking out that way. You're not even sure what that thing is. You're like, here's my lamb. God's like, no, 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 no. Now, when I'm going to play like that, you get your best one. You look in there, you find the best one. Best one, prettiest one you got. Every year, you get the best lamb you have. You search through, you get the best one. I'll know your heart. And you bring the best one, the unblemished one. See, here's why Jesus is superior. The Passover lambs of the Old Testament had to be physically, at least in appearance, perfect. Although none of them were. Jesus, our lamb, would be totally perfect. Jesus was not just unblemished on the exterior, he was sinless. Folks, there's been three perfect humans ever, Adam, Eve, and Jesus. Adam and Eve sinned, they did not remain perfect, and therefore every one of us subsequently born were born in sin because we were represented in Adam and Eve. They are heads, Adam was the head. So from Adam, we all got a sin nature. Jesus was born of a woman so he'd be human, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He didn't get a sin nature. So Jesus was sinless, and then he never sinned the way Adam and Eve did. So when he dies for us, our Passover lamb was totally perfect, totally sinless. So when he died, he not only held back the wrath of God, he satisfied the wrath of God. He is superior. He didn't just kick the can down the road for somebody else to deal with like every other lamb ever had. No, he dealt with it. Because he's the only one that ever could. Because he was perfect, our sins could be placed on him. Had Jesus ever sinned, then we would not be saved and we would not be forgiven. So why do these things matter? Because they are pillars of our faith. The reason we must believe and hold that Jesus was sinless is because without his sinless sacrifice, we have no hope. But church, we do have hope today. We have every reason to have a little "Uh uh-huh because of Jesus, right? kind of own that today. (laughs) He wasn't just physically, he was totally perfect. Thirdly, Exodus 12, 6, God says, and you shall keep it, that lamb, until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel will kill their lambs at twilight. Now watch this. How do you think that went? All of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Israelites. So what, 250,000 homes, dwellings, that many lambs. At the same moment, they had to take them. Now, do you think the lambs just walked into the living room and said, <laughs> and laid down and let them do it? <laughs> Let's think about this. No, your sons, your daughters, everybody, that family would have to wrestle down that little thing. It was brutal. It's awful. Somebody's got to get a knife. That lamb did not go willingly. That's the difference, but Jesus did. Why is Jesus superior? Because none of those lambs willingly gave their lives. The Passover lambs of the Old Testament unwillingly 
had their lives taken. They kicked and fought the whole time. But Jesus didn't kick or fight. Jesus, the lamb, willingly chose to sacrifice his life for us. As Romans nailed nails into his hands and feet, he forgave them on the spot. The Bible says no one took the Son of God's life. He laid it down for us. The Romans didn't take his life. I mean, he reminded Pilate at the last minute that Pilate had zero authority over him. That no, he would lay his life down. He would willingly take the cross. He would walk up Calvary's hill. He would willingly lay out his hands. He would willingly fold his feet. He would willingly hang on to the whipping post. He would willingly allow the crown of thorns. He would willingly allow our sin to be placed on him. He would willingly allow his perfect life to count for our imperfect lives. That's what he would do. And no one would take it from him. He would lay his life down. He is our superior Passover lamb, church. He's superior. The Old Testament, they all got to see the previews. We got to see the movie. We got to see it. Jesus clarified it that night as he, as he ripped that bread apart and looked at him and said, this is what I'm going to do. As he poured that wine, he said, this is what's going to happen. Everything you've done all of these years is about me. It's about me. Let me clarify it. Let me transform it. Oh, by the way, and you never have to do it again. You never have to go through this again. That's who Jesus is. Exodus 12, 7. God said, and then you will take some blood, some of the blood, and you'll put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. What happens now? Well, each one of those families takes some blood and they put it on the doorpost. The doorpost was an external thing. Why is Jesus superior? Because the blood of the Passover lamb was applied to an external doorpost for that night. But the blood of Jesus, the lamb, is applied to the internal hearts of believers. See that? See, if you're a Christian in this room today, you didn't know this, but your heart has a door. You do know that, right? Jesus told you that. Jesus said that he stands at the door and he knocks. Is he talking about your house? He doesn't show up to your house hitting your ringtone. Ding, ding, ding. You look, you're like, man, that's Jesus standing there. He's talking about your heart. I stand at the door and I knock. Yeah, you got a door to your heart. And the Israelites all took blood and they put it on their doorpost. External, one night. It didn't satisfy anything, it just held it back. Jesus, through his death, applies his blood to our hearts forever, never to be removed. And no one took his life. And oh, by the way, we didn't apply his blood ourselves. He'll do that part too. He's the priest who applies it for us. He's the priest. He's the only priest who ever sacrificed. He's both the lamb and the priest. Jesus is our superior Passover lamb. Exodus 12, 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. You can just hear the power of God in this. Every false god will bow before him. Every idea, he has total power. But I want you to notice something here. He said, that night. I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night. So this is what I want you to understand. Those Passover lambs, all of them, 250,000 of them, 300,000 of them, however many it was, and then subsequently, year after year, all those lambs, they protected Israel for one night. One night from the wrath and judgment of God. Jesus, the lamb, did not pro just protect. I want you to understand the difference. He satisfied 
the wrath and judgment of God forever, not for one night, forever on our behalf. That's really good news, church. Forever. His sacrifice is total. It's complete. It's forever. Jesus didn't make a down payment. He didn't put your redemption on layaway. Y'all, some of y'all, the, kid, the, the modern, the young people don't remember that. I remember layaway as a kid. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My parents slap some stuff on layaway sometimes. Make you appreciate it when you got it. Amazon didn't just show up at the door and drop off something. No, no, you went down to Kmart and put it on layaway. How many of my people are out there? Can I get my people in the room? Uh-huh. That's a good old days. When you finally got what you wanted two and a half years later, you're like, man, I don't, know, I don't even know if I want it anymore. And then your parents said, that's exactly what we were counting on. No, Jesus didn't make a down payment. He didn't put it on layaway. It's for real. It is forever. Protected one night, we're protected forever. The Bible says now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a one-time sacrifice for all time. The book of Hebrews begins to clarify even more. The great apostle Paul writes about it in Hebrews 10, 1, and then 3 through 4. He says, watch this now. If you want a total explanation of why Jesus is superior to the Old Testament Passover. Here we go. Watch this. For since the law, what's the law? The Mosaic Covenant, which is what the Passover was a part of. All that, right? Watch. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, so it's a preview, not the movie. Watch. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, all of those sacrifices never saved anybody. Watch this. In these sacrifices, here's what they do. They remind you of your sins every year. They remind you of the wrath of God. That's all they could do. Verse 4, and here's why. Here's the kicker. It's impossible for the blood of a bull or a goat to take away sins. They never took away sins. So why is Jesus superior? Because the Passover lamb was an animal. But Jesus was the God-man. The Passover lamb was an animal unable to take the place of a human. A lamb can't take your place because you're a human. The lamb's an animal. I know you love your dogs, but your dogs aren't humans. Humans are special, even more special than dogs, and definitely cats. <laughs> and same thing goes with a sheep. A sheep, I know, I hear you. Sheep and goat can't take your place. No, it can kick the can down the road, if you will. But they had to do it every year, had to do it every year, had to bring another one every year. The disciples had done it all their lives every year because they understood the wrath of God was still there and it had to be held off. But Jesus comes and takes our place. It's called substitutionary atonement. Every lamb had never taken their place, but Jesus actually can take our place. He's a human. He is sacrificed as a human, a perfect human, so that all of our sins can be placed on him. And now we have a substitute in our place. His righteousness is placed on us. Our sin is placed on him and it is forever that's the gospel so Jesus is superior and finally in Hebrews 9 12 Paul says this he entered once and for all how many times once and for all into the holy places not by beings of blood or goats and calves no no not that's done he did it by his own blood thus securing secured he satisfied it it's done he secured our eternal redemption write it down the Passover lamb was a temporary sacrifice Jesus the lamb was the final sacrifice Jesus on the cross in the middle of his sacrifice 
He is asphyxiating. His lungs are filled with fluid at this point. His heart is now pumping fluid. That's how you die in a crucifixion. He's in the most horrific pain. His body is literally collapsing upon itself internally. He can't breathe anymore. He's in unbelievable pain, yet he's got one more in him. He's got one more. He wraps his bloody fingers around two Roman spikes and figures out a way to drag his shredded body up the cross. He fills his lungs as much as he can with air. He's literally beginning to choke on the fluids that are happening inside of him. But he gets one more big breath, and the Bible says right at the end of the sacrifice, he cries out three words, cries them out with everything he has. It is finished. He says something nobody ever could say. No other priest, no other lamb could ever say. He says, this is the last one. It's done. Forever. It's done. Never again. It's done. And that is why I can tell you, every Christian in this room today, that you can rest in the gospel. There's no more work to do. No more hoops to jump through. Jesus is your final Passover lamb. And we worship him for that. And we praise him for that. And we follow him for that. And now we're going to worship him together for that. Would you stand all over this room? I want to pray for us. And then we're going to sing in response to what we've heard. Jesus, thank you for your truth and word. May you be glorified in this place by your grace and your power. And may you be glorified in our worship now. Our Passover lamb in Jesus' name. Amen.